Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Caught in the middle, markets face some encouraging news on the economic front, some troubling news about the COVID-19 virus, and look for news about further help from the government. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. When the virus hit ground zero in New York, Dr. Stephen Corwin was on the front lines fighting it as CEO of one of the largest and most prestigious hospitals in the country. And he says that as much progress as we've made, we are not out of the woods yet. Uh, no question about the fact that at our peak, we were at about 2,700 cases throughout my hospital system. Uh, that represented about 80% of our capacity. Uh, we're down to less than uh, 350 cases now uh, in, our, in our institutions and much less in terms of ICU care. So uh, we clearly have been on the downward trend and thankfully uh, that's continued. And, and taken up some of the pressure or taken off some of the pressure on our system. So the next stage is, has to be, how worried are we about an uptick? We're seeing it in some of the states, not big numbers, but the rate is disturbing. We also now see it in Beijing as well. How concerned yeah. are you that here in New York we could have an uptick? Well, I'm concerned across the country that we're going to have an uptick. You're now seeing some hot spots potentially in Houston, Phoenix, parts of Florida. Uh, you can't let this get out of control because then contact tracing goes out the window. And that's when you really put pressure on the, the hospital system as a whole. Uh, I'm concerned about people becoming weary about social distancing. Uh, even with the opening up, uh, one can still maintain social distancing. I think people are weary of that, and therefore we need to be wary uh, of an uptick in infections and, and follow that closely. In the other areas of the country, uh, you need to follow not just the uh, increase in infections, because if you test more, you're going to find more people have it. 
but what's the hospitalization rate? And that's where I get concerned uh, in speaking to colleagues uh, in Houston and Phoenix, uh, David. And so are we better prepared for an uptick at this point from things we've learned about the virus and how to treat it? And for that matter, on some of the equipment issues like ventilators and personal protective equipment, are we better oh, no, prepared? No, yeah, no question about comes? it. No question about it. We're better prepared. Uh, we, could, we could deal with the second wave more effectively, uh, both from the standpoint of uh, state and city government, as well as how hospitals need to prepare for it. We know how to surge. We've, we've changed the way that we look at how much protective equipment we need, how many ventilators we need, how much ICU capacity we need. Uh, so I think we're better prepared for it. But let's just remember, uh, we still are only talking about uh, supportive therapy. We don't have an effective therapy. We don't have an effective vaccine. And so keeping the transmission rate less than one is how you don't overwhelm the economy or of the hospital system. As a practical matter, what is the likelihood of an effective treatment or a vaccine? There's a lot of talk about it, even by the end of the year. Uh, it's impossible to know for sure, but what what do you think about the prospects? You know, we should all be rooting for it. There's no question about it. I think there are. I think it's more likely that we will start to see uh, effective combination therapies uh, before the end of the year than we will see an effective vaccine. Uh, but we hope for both. Uh, if passed as prelude, the earliest uh, development of a vaccine took about four years, um, and that's the mumps vaccine. So I would be dubious to think that we could get mass inoculations uh, in, uh, in, in 20 or 21. Uh, I think the first set will be uh, people on the front lines volunteering for vaccination. Then you have to determine whether it's efficacious over a period of time. Uh, and whether it causes uh, side effects. There are some vaccines that can actually worsen the disease. So we still have a long road to go, but in terms of the amount of effort put into it, uh, let's root for our biotech and big pharma firms to, to come up with something because uh, this this is a very, very serious disease uh, and with a high mortality associated with it if you need to be hospitalized. No question about that. Uh, Dr. Corbin, when we talk about the tools we have to use, uh, we've talked before, before there was a pandemic, about the role of technology. Uh, what role is telemedicine playing and, can, and it could play a larger role going forward as we have problems? Well, we've crossed the Rubicon on telemedicine. Before the pandemic, about 3% of our visits were telemedicine visits. Uh, Post-pandemic, uh, we're at about uh, 40 to 45 percent of our office visits or telemedicine visits during the pandemic. It was almost universal that the only way we would see patients with, uh, with tel was with telemedicine. So I think that's here to stay as technology improves, as remote patient monitoring improves. We'll be able to do more with telemedicine. It, it will become uh, part of the way that uh, physicians and nurse practitioners and others see patients. And I think we can do a better job with that. So it, this is just ex an acceleration of the trend. And I think it's uh, there's no turning back on that at this point. So telemedicine is here to stay, no question about it. I have to ask about your colleagues. I mean, they've been through really a war uh, with all the consequences of that. How are they doing? What are you trying to do for people who have been exhausted, have seen things that no one should have to see? Well, we put a lot of mental health and well-being supports in place. Uh, a lot of anonymous consultative services uh, from our psychiatrists are in place. But the first thing for healthcare workers is not is to not think that you can just tough it out, because that's the way that we train people. You can you can get through this. You can tough it out. Uh, this is this this has been horrific. Uh, I, I worry very much about people having to go through a second wave of this. Uh, so we're offering all sorts of emotional support services uh, for 
uh, all of our workers, really. We had a tragic suicide uh, of uh, a leader of one of our emergency departments who went home to Charlottesville on leave to try to recover from uh, an episode of depression. Uh, so this can affect people acutely. And more importantly, people have to recognize it can affect people after the fact, once the pandemic uh, has passed. That was Dr. Stephen Corwin of New York Presbyterian Hospital. Coming up, airlines come to grips with a very different world and how they can manage a turnaround. We talk with the CEO of Delta Airlines, Ed Bastian. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Airlines have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic, but this week they started planning their comeback, albeit with some changes in how we fly and how their businesses will work. We talked with the CEO of Delta Airlines, Ed Bastian. We're in the process of a, of a recovery, uh, no question about it. It's slow. It's going to take some time, but there's there's clear signs. It's the momentum we have is meaningful, and it's, it's continuing to build. We bottomed out in mid-April with maybe only 5% of our normal customer load uh, uh, traveling today. I think that number is closer to 15%. So the optimist in me says we've tripled uh, over the last couple months, which isn't bad, but we got a long ways to go yet. Uh, I expect that number to get up to 20% in the, in the coming weeks. We're adding a bunch more flying both in July and again in August, 1,000 flights a day, each month added uh, in the next couple months. And so by the end of the uh, third quarter here, you know, we hopefully are back to about 30% of our loads that we are, we are carrying. So we're being very disciplined, uh, taking good care of our people and customers on the journey, but the recovery has started. So how much visibility do you feel you have beyond that third quarter? I mean, if you go up to 30%, does it keep rising at a fairly steady pace or is there possibly a plateau? What do you anticipate going forward? When will you be back to essentially full usage? Well, there's never been more uncertainty given what we're, we're addressing with both the pandemic and the, the resultant economic impact. You know, changes in business travel patterns uh, will also impact this industry. So our crystal ball is, is a little murkier than normal. But you know, I do expect after Labor Day, it's going to be an important uh, milestone and, and pivot point for us because that's typically when business travel starts to pick up again. Right now, the, the vast majority of our customer base is leisure. Uh, people going out, there's some good bargains, uh, not just in the air, but on the ground as, as hotels and theme parks and casinos are all opening. But we need businesses to start opening. And right now, they're, they're, most businesses are still largely closed, uh, big corporate businesses. And as they start to open, hopefully after Labor Day, you'll start to see an improved mix of revenue flow. And that that then will be the next stage of the recovery for us. A key element for all businesses seeking to reopen is the confidence of customers that they will be safe when they go to the business. What are you doing at Delta? Give us a sense of how, what the sort of operational changes you're making to try to reassure p- travelers that they will be OK on your aircraft. Well, that's that's our that's our most important task here is protecting the safety and the welfare of both our people as well as our customers. And we're uh, we're doing a tremendous amount. We're, we're accustomed to safety. Safety is in our DNA. That, that's what we sell. We sell safety uh, in the sky. And we now uh, have added another dimension of that, safety from the virus, uh, safety with respect to the hygiene and the sanitization on board our aircraft. Uh, we've, we've uh, for those of you that haven't been out traveling, you'll see a lot of changes in, and I think significant improvements in the experience as you go forward. Uh, masks are required, both in the airports, as you board the plane, 
as you're on the plane. And, and masks, I get a lot of questions about masks. Masks are there not just to protect you, it's to protect others as well on board. One of the most important layers of protection we can have is, is using masks throughout society today. Uh, we've put distancing protocols in place. We've capped load factors. Uh, on Delta, uh, we will not board planes more than 60% full, which guarantees the seat next to you, every seat next to you, is open on board the plane. There's no, no middle seats being sold uh, at all. Uh, we've put le electrostatic fogging in place before every single flight that takes off. And we've also added a, a considerable amount of time and attention focused on the filtration systems on board our planes. We have uh, HEPA filters, which are the highest quality filters one can find. It's what's used by hospitals in their in their operating rooms and clean room environments. Uh, HEPA filters completely circulate and recirculate the air every two to four minutes, with 50% of that air coming from fresh outside the cabin. So the air you're breathing is completely changed out every couple minutes on board the flight throughout the entire journey. And the, the tests and the monitors that we've been using, because we've got sensors now on board our plane to test the quality of the air. It's, it's, the, it's the purest air quality you'll find anywhere. It's, it's, it's 10 times better than a building environment or retail. It's, it's really phenomenal as, as you start to see all these layers of protection add up. And the results our customers are telling us They've, they've never felt safer traveling. They've never felt better about the experience. Our net promoter scores are up at least 10 right. points over where they were just a couple months ago. And our people are also safe on board. You know, I've, I've, uh, we've monitored the health and the welfare of our people continuously on board. We've got about 50,000 people in the customer service area. Right. The rate of infection that we've seen over the last couple months amongst our own people is five times lower than the national average of infection across our entire country. And these are right. people that live in the airport and right. live on planes. So all, all the steps are indicating it's safe to travel and, right. and confidence is starting to return. Right, all of which is very, must be very encouraging to people using Delta Airlines. At the same time, is there a trade-off here? You mentioned load factor, 60% load factor. That historically has been an indicator of profitability for airlines. Uh, it has always been sort of a tough business to be in the airline business. Can you get a good business with reduced load factors as a practical matter? Doesn't that really hit your profitability? Well, the steps that we're taking are certainly temporary. You know, once there is a vaccine, once there are therapeutics to deal with the virus, once there's herd immunity, whatever combination of factors get involved with respect to society, feeling safe to be out in public once again, obviously we'll start to increase the load uh, factor caps and eventually take the caps off. But for now, while there's still public concern, I want to instill confidence in the travel experience and give customers the assurance that when you book on Delta, you will have space on board, you'll have that seat next to you open. And when we get up to close to 60%, because right now we're about 50% full, so in some markets we're already bumping against the cap, that's the key to add more flights, add bigger planes back into the system. Can Delta be profitable without a vaccine? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. You know, next year will be the test of that. Uh, we'll see when the when the vaccine comes in. Uh, you know, right now we've we've been very focused on reducing our cash burn. Uh, when with the pandemic started, we were burning almost a hundred million dollars a day in cash uh, for the month of June. Just ninety days later. Uh, we've gotten that cash burn down to about $30 million a day. So we've done a very good job taking our costs down. Uh, our costs within the current quarter, we've reduced 55% 
of the cost within the current quarter. And uh, we'll continue to keep cost at a, at a very disciplined level as we add back capacity. And so, as you see, that's why I mentioned we're at 15% revenues. We hope to get to 30% over the next two to three months, keeping the cost at that 50% level. And then we'll eventually, I, I would imagine by the spring next year, be at a point where we're, we're break even. And I also think that's the time when people will have more and more confidence being out in public, more accustomed to the safety protocols. And, and you know, word of mouth from consumers as they get out and they travel and they see it's actually not as scary as people think. That was Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines. Coming up, the Bank of England was the latest central bank to weigh in on what needs to be done for the economy, stepping up its bond buying program by 100 billion pounds. Our contributor, Stephanie Flanders, on what the BOE decision means. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. England has its own version of economic problems triggered by its response to the pandemic layered on top of the uncertainty surrounding its leaving the European Union. This week, the Bank of England took steps to shore up the British economy by increasing its bond buying program, although it stopped short of taking steps toward a negative interest rate. We talked to Stephanie Flanders. She's senior executive editor for economics at Bloomberg and also a Wall Street Week contributor. And Stephanie said that the Bank of England had some surprises for us this week. Well, it was, it was widely expected. And actually, it was, it was £100 billion, pounds, which is even worth a little bit more than $100 billion, although I'm sure we'll get there in the end. Uh, but they've added to their uh, bond buying. Um, but they also, the surprise for the markets was that they were suggesting that they might sort of taper off uh, the bond buying by the end of the year, at least in terms of their formal plans. They're saying they think it could end uh, at the end of the year. I'm not sure that we really believe that they won't uh, that they won't buy more at that point, but it does speak to the uncertainty they see. Remember, the UK is, has really not got very far along lifting uh, the restrictions on the economy. We're well behind continental Europe on that. So the uncertainty about what this crisis is going to leave behind uh, let alone worries about second wave and other things, is really great. And I think policymakers, both on the government side and on the Bank of England side, are factoring that into their considerations. They don't want to commit themselves before they really see what the scope of the damage is. So as you say, Stephanie, you've got the COVID-19 issues, and those are devilishly difficult, as we've proven here in the United States. You also have that little thing called Brexit that's hanging out there. 
What will buying more bonds, 100 billion pounds more bonds, what will that do for the economy in the UK? Look, it's very, it's the same question that you raise is everywhere, but as you notice that there's a lot more going on in the UK, even the the potential, the government's not been very effective in dealing with the public health crisis, although the measures to support the economy have been effective. We've had this prolonged shutdown, which may mean we have the biggest decline in GDP of all the major uh, economies. Um, so to add to that, the decision to just move out of a uh, uh, very long-term, 40-year relationship with the European Union, obviously on the outside, looks a little crazy. Um, but I guess the, the, the positive spin on it is that whatever cost that one sees associated with Brexit, whether it's a few percentage of GDP, that seemed like much bigger number a year ago than when we started seeing these big, big numbers uh, related to the shock of the COVID crisis. So I can't help thinking that's what ministers are thinking. We just need to get Brexit over with because anything, any negative effects will be kind of lost in this emergency over COVID. Uh, Stephanie, go across the channel and talk about Europe and what's going on in Europe right now. The ECB certainly has stepped up to the plate and really tried to support the economy there quite a bit. How is it working out? You know, I think uh, when, when I think back to the experience of the global financial crisis and then the Eurozone crisis coming after that, that Eurozone crisis was partly because the Eurozone had not grappled quickly with the problems that Europe faced as a result of the global financial crisis. And they had made that mistake of tightening fiscal policy too soon. We're really seeing a different approach this time play out where actually they're teaching the rest of the world lessons. We have massive fiscal support, but the European Central Bank, another record drawdown of those cheap special loan, long-term loans uh, for the banking sector, another over a trillion uh, euros going out the door. You know, they are not putting the brakes on the credit side of the economy when we're just starting to see economies reopen. Um, and as I said, we're also getting that we've talked in the past, there's going to be a bit further fiscal support. And you're seeing Germany and France in particular coming back pretty quickly. That V-shaped recovery we are seeing even on the consumption side in the latest numbers. So how do you put together on the one hand, the economic side, some of the stimulus being given, monetary and coming fiscal, with how you're handling COVID-19? It's hard for all of us to sort out right now how much of this is the economy, how much of this is consumer confidence as people can come back into the marketplace. I think it's a really striking lesson, especially when you look at the data coming from Germany and France, as the fear of the virus and fear of getting infected. They actually have a measure of that, that they've been polling people for six months or, or more in, in uh, or a few months in Germany. As that fear goes down, uh, you've seen consumers go back. I talked to my colleagues in Germany, a German economist, their families are going out eating pizza, going back to swimming pools. It's starting to feel normal in only a few weeks. And I think that's because there's confidence in the strategy, confidence that the government has got the disease under control. Where you have... Uh, in the US, some states where cases are going up, or Sweden, for example, where they never had big lockdown requirements, but people had been worried about going out, you may see a much slower pace of recovery. But it's, it's a really good example. If you get it right, you can have that V-shaped recovery that so many investors are betting on. That was Wall Street Week contributor Stephanie Flanders. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston 
from Bloomberg Radio. To help us pull together the strands from this week on Global Wall Street, welcome now our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, normally we take a sort of macro look at what's happened. Uh, this week, let's take a look. You suggested it. It's sort of micro. Let's go sector by sector. Take two or three sectors. Start with airlines. We just heard on this program from Ed Bastian, the CEO of, of Delta, that they are on their way back. It's going to take a little while, but they're really on their back. And stocks, by the way, airline stocks came up this week as there were reports of more bookings. What are we learning about the economy and the markets from what's going on with the airlines? Well, I'm surprised at what's happened to the total value of airlines. If you look at their equity plus the value of their debt, it's remarkably close to uh, where it had been uh, before uh, COVID. Uh, I wonder whether the market's a little ahead of itself uh, with respect to uh, the airlines. I think there are a number of stocks uh, Hertz uh, was another one as it was going through bankruptcy that retail have been piling into as a kind of bet that this uh, crisis is going to resolve itself uh, fairly quickly. I think airlines will work themselves out of this some which way. Uh, they will cut costs. They will cut the number of flights uh, they are running. They will probably jack up uh prices to cover the costs of lower uh, ocu lower occupancy uh, factors. But I suspect it's going to be a difficult period ahead uh, for uh, the airline industry. And I think that the world has changed because of what technology is making possible. And there are going to be many fewer road warriors in American business than there ever have been uh, before. And that's going to take a lasting toll on uh, airline uh, bookings. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of think this is a microcosm of an issue that we have generally in the economy that markets uh, may be getting a little ahead of some genuinely uh, favorable news that we are turning back. But uh in some areas, I think markets are probably a bit ahead of reality. So, so, so that's the airline industry. Let's talk about digital right now, technology in particular. That technology really has been on a tear for some time now. The, the COVID-19 has not slowed it down much at all. At the same time, there is this issue about digital taxation. As, as countries around the world are saying, we want to tax on what you're doing right now. We thought we were negotiating an international deal about how we're going to have digital services taxes. And then the U.S. actually pulled out. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, pulled out. The Europeans didn't take it well. They said it was a very provocative act. They're going to go their own way. What might this mean for the future of digital and technology? Well, let's separate uh, two issues. Uh, this is a good time for technology companies. The fact that we're all working out of our homes, the fact that we're all doing our shopping uh, out of our homes, the fact that we're all having our social interactions out of our homes, the platform companies that enable all of that, this is a terrific opportunity. They are rapidly growing companies that have secure cash flows well into the future in an era when interest rates have come way down. So they're long duration companies to put it in financial parlance. And that's also contributed to the strength of uh, their stocks. So it's a good time to be a big technology platform company. 
it's a time when they're earning more rents than they ever have before. There was an important, very substantial issue of their undertaxation before. The nature of their business made it very difficult to trace their income to any individual country. And therefore, they were able to locate income in tax havens in some of the lowest tax countries in the world, or they were able to locate income in cyberspace where it wasn't deemed to be part of any country. And therefore, on a global basis, those companies have paid remarkably little in taxes relative to their market value. It's actually been at the edge of abusive for uh, some years. It was exactly the right kind of thing that globalization negotiation should be about to try to take on that problem and to have a global cooperative regime so that we could tax the profits of these extraordinarily fortunate companies and uh, their stockholders. I don't know what exactly the right position is on the details of the negotiation. And I recognize that there is some risk of a gang up on America aspect in this because most of the companies um, uh, that have this tremendous platform capacity are American. Think of Amazon or Google or Facebook or Microsoft, or, uh, Microsoft, Microsoft Apple. But, God, the job of the Secretary of the Treasury is to be standing up for 330 million American citizens, not 10 American tech companies that pay less taxes than the secretaries who work within them pay as a share of uh, income. And so to see the United States adding this negotiation over global tax fairness to the list of negotiations it's torpedoed um, in uh, recent years. I really wasn't uh, happy uh, to uh, see that. And I think that the Secretary of the Treasury should be looking to be as constructive as he can with respect to a very difficult problem, not to be doing battle for the economic interests of trillion dollar companies that between them right. don't employ 1% of the American people. And finally, Larry, let's take a sector near and dear to your heart. That's higher education. you not only a professor at Harvard, you ran Harvard for a time. And of course, you know higher education very, very well. How is higher education in the United States going to come out of this pandemic? Because there's a lot of uncertainty about kids going back to school come September. So the issue everybody's excited about is what's going to happen in September and Truth is, nobody knows. Everybody's watching uh, everybody else. They've got to be very careful because if you think about it, a college dorm is a lot like uh, a cruise ship. People who are in close uh, quarters, people who are often uh, inebriated, people who are uh, looking for companionship, uh, shall we say. And cruise ships are... Um, hotbeds of contagion, and college dorms may be as well. And the first obligation of any university president is to make sure that her university isn't uh, a major source of contagion uh, to uh, the community. So I think they've got to be very careful, even as important as it is, 
with respect to uh, bringing kids back. But really, the question is, is this moment going to be the catalyst for major structural reform in higher education that emphasizes the capacity of technology to cause materials to reach a very large scale, rather than calculus being taught 5,000 times every fall semester in 5,000 different high schools uh, and colleges, are we going to figure out to use technology, use technology to bring the best performances of instruction to the most people, use technology to permit personalization where you receive input at a rate that depends on your own ability to absorb it, which is being measured continuously with uh, little quizzes, use technology to enable customization and tailoring of intellectual materials to the individual student. What should be happening is universities should be stretching and competing to be the leader. I'm not sure, frankly, that universities have the courage to be so dynamic. And we're going to find out. That's the world according to Larry Summers, which is the world we always want to see right here on Wall Street Week. You heard about it from him, about uh, the higher education, as well as digital, as well as aviation. It's been an eventful week, a lot of ups and downs with not a lot of direction in the markets. But Larry Summers took us through those three critical uh, sectors. So thank you very much, Larry Summers. Finally, buddy, can you spare a dime or a nickel or a quarter? We learned this week from Fed Chair Jay Powell that it's not just jobs and corporate profits we're running short of, we're running short of coins. What's happened is that with the partial closure of the economy, the the flow of coins through the economy has gotten all, it's kind of stopped. It turns out that despite all the talk about cryptocurrencies and electronic payments, when things get rough, we all want to hold on to cold, hard cash, which has meant that banks are depositing 50% less coins with the Fed this year than last year. And it's not just coins that we're all hoarding, it's also bills. The amount of bills in circulation has gone up by 50% in the period February to May over a year ago. So if we want some indication of how confident we all are in the future, we might just want to start counting our pennies. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.